this podcast, we're going to explore how ready we are to operate a net zero system. Regen is a not-for-profit centre of energy expertise and market insight, whose mission is to transform our energy system for a zero carbon future. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to this uh, Regen podcast, uh, where we talk about some of the kind of the big questions in the energy transition. That's the the aim of our our podcast. And today we've got uh, a nice and simple uh, topic. Is the energy system working, given the scale of the kind of transformation uh, that we've seen? How is the system coping and how is it going to cope in the future with all the kind of rapid technological changes that what sort of uh, Dieter Helm referred to a few years ago as seismic shifts in technology. So I'm joined today by two of my colleagues, uh, who I'm hoping will have all the answers to uh, to those questions, uh, Madeline and Johnny. So uh, welcome both. Um, Madeline, how are you uh, looking forward then to your new career as a, as a podcaster? <laughs> Uh, well, as I said the other day, I was on the radio on Monday, so I'm pretty much a pro broadcaster now. Uh, and I was just reflecting the other day that I used to work in the government doing data science policy and never thought I'd found anything more complicated than data science policy. And here I am doing a podcast on flexibility in the energy system. And I can tell you now that it is definitely more complicated. So definitely looking forward to the next half hour. Excellent. Um, excellent. Um, have you been, uh, uh, sorry, Jenny, but have you, have you been um, checking in at any other podcasts? Are you modelling yourself on on anyone? Louis Theroux, maybe? Today or... <laughs> yeah, that's that's my aim, eventually. If we do enough of these, I'll, you know, I'll be as experienced as him. <laughs> excellent. Okay. And uh, morning, Johnny. Are you, um, where, where are you broadcasting to the nation from today? I'm down in Devon, lovely Devon, and I'm going to be modelling myself on Peter Crouch's podcast, hopefully. Excellent. Okay. Well, that's, uh, that's a good start. Um, so I'm thinking back to kind of, I guess, uh, you know, 15, 20 years ago, and deep back when Regen was, was um, formed, and there was uh, a few crazy people out there saying that we should have lots of renewables and renewables the answer, and everyone said they were way too expensive and they didn't work, and I think we can look back and say uh, we were right and they were wrong. Um, so that's always nice. Um, but one of the other things that they kind of said was what happens when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine? Um, so we're now up at, you know, getting on for like 50% of our power coming from renewables. Um, and, you know, it's a very different system. You know, the, 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 we used to, the system operator, the, the, the ESO used to, you know, some someone in control room, Mary, would keep an eye on when the uh, the half time in the in the cup final was coming up and bring up Fred at Drax or wherever and uh, tell him to you know fire up a bit more. So it's nice and simple. Now we've got this very complicated system. So um, how's it working, Johnny? Well, it's 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 working fairly well, I would say. I mean, we're not seeing the system falling over. You know, well, except last August when we had a lightning strike, which was I guess a rare occasion. We are seeing the system resilience there. And I think the COVID experience in particular, uh, I think back to March and April time when we saw a significant drop in demand and um, it's a bit of a cliche, but that insight in terms of what a very high renewable system might look like. And I think the, the consensus there was the, 
the system performed, it didn't fall over. I mean, there was a lot of scrambling around for solutions and clearly it wasn't as efficient and it certainly wasn't as cost efficient as we want the system to be in the future. But I think we should take some, some confidence from that and some heart from that to push on in terms of further deployments of renewables. Okay, so, I mean, that's a pretty good story, isn't it? I mean, if you'd said that system operators would be able to cope with 50% renewables a few years ago and kind of make the whole thing add up, you'd, you know, you'd probably been with quite a lot of questions about, about that. So it feels like a pretty good story. Um, Madeline, I was thinking you, you, you've been our policy lead for um, the electricity storage network for a while. So you're spending a lot of time talking with some of the kind of players who are really at the forefront of this. Um, what's it like? What's it like if you're operating a large scale battery or aggregating a fleet of batteries and trying to you know, provide services into this, into this system? It's interesting, just what Johnny was saying about, you know, during COVID, ESO may be scrabbling about a bit and trying to find the right services to address, you know, quite a shock to the system, um, which is true. And there's quite a lot of opinion on whether the ESO did a good job or a bad job. And I'm sure that debate will rage on for ages. But actually, from the storage perspective, there was a lot of opportunities there. You know, we're, we're, storage is always looking for that volatility in the market to jump in and uh, you know provide flexibility but also to make money off that um, off that volatility and during COVID there was of course a lot of that and we saw the ESO actually come through with some really innovative solutions so they very quickly turned around new markets they responded to requests from the storage um, operators from storage assets to do different new things and it was quite innovative so yeah they were scrabbling around a bit but I think it really shows that they can innovate quickly when they want to, and storage can really jump on that and, and take advantage of it very quickly. So I think, yeah, it was a bit difficult and we've still got a lot to learn, but it shows the potential of what we can do in the future and what storage can offer to that. We're all talking about flexibility and, and, and making money off flexibility, which is a slightly odd concept in, in itself in a way, in a flexibility market. I mean, it sounds like something that a gymnast would be good at, you know, something that's kind of... It's like, you know, once upon a time you sold kilowatt hours in the market and then, you know, you produced power and you sold it and there was money. But now you seem to be making, you know, you're, you're making your money from your ability to provide it when people need it on, on and off. It's a very different world. I mean. yeah, yes, it is. And, and, and we need to be a little bit careful because flexibility in terms of a flexibility market is meant to be providing that kind of marginal supply and demand. It's meant to be the balancing of the system. And, and let's be fair, I mean, during the COVID time, you know, there was a lot of intervention into the in, into the market. There was a lot of intervention by the ESO and at times interventions that we wouldn't want to countenance in the future, like turning off wind farms or turning down nuclear. So that clearly isn't the answer. And, and what we need to get back to is a market that works, that you know, 98% of the system balancing is coming through market solutions. And then when we're talking about contracting for flexibility, that is adding that additional uh, fine-tuning of the system as it's meant to be. And, and I think you know, we're, we're still some way from that if we're talking about a fully decarbonized renewable system. So, I mean, it worked after a fashion, but it was expensive. I think there's a figure of a £750 million spent in balancing services, which is clearly not where we want to be going forward. You were talking there about a lot of innovation going on, and I think we'll we'll see that, don't we? There's a lot of competitions and new markets and uh, new standards and lots of focus on data and digitalization and whole system stuff. Um, so have we got the right 
kind of sweet, you know, is it, Johnny's pointing out, we need, you know, we still got some way to go to make this, this system work optimally in the future and cope with even more renewables. You know, are, are we doing the right things? Are we innovating in the right areas? There's, a, like you say, a whole suite of things that need to be done. So I think it's quite hard to say that we're doing all the right stuff. Um, we're doing a lot of the right stuff. Um, I, I, in some ways, I don't envy the ESO. They've got a really hard job and very complex system to run. And they've been working with, you know, something that's been in place for decades and based on very old systems. So they were trying to adapt, um, you know, a, a, an incredibly old system to something that's new and flexible and fast and based on data and real-time dispatch and things like that. So I think for me, that's the area that really needs the improvement. We from our, we've had quite a lot of chats with the ESO and um, with their head of control and how they innovate and adapt in the control room. And they are doing a lot of work on that, but it is really hard, like I say. And I think some of, we can talk about some of the issues with that, but fundamentally, they're driven by a merit order, which, as far as I can tell, is basically dictated on cost. Uh, and they're having to dispatch items based on cost with a really clunky, outdated system. And that's where I think we're going to see the crux of we can we can fix all the other stuff. We can have all the right markets. Uh, we can have all the right technologies. But until we fix that, we can't dispatch those things to match the needs that we have on the system. I, I was on a um, Bay session on the future of flexibility markets uh, yes, a couple of days ago, I, I think. And um, I was kind of saying, well, uh, you know, ESO working hard, really trying its best to improve things. And one of the other participants, I went, say, was like, I think you're being a bit generous, Merlin. Um, so, Johnny, was I, was I being too generous there? Or, or, uh, or do you think that, you know, good progress has been made? Is that some sort of a hospital pass you've just given me there? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Score out of 10. Yeah, and I, th- I think uh, I'm, I'm, you know, Madeline summed it up very well there, but, the, you know, the ESO is, is driving a lot of innovation. But I mean, we shouldn't just look to the ESO. I mean, the, the market itself is is bringing forward innovation, and, and I think there's a there's a very wide suite of opportunities there. It's, you know, it's quite exciting, actually, and and I think there's a realization that we're just at the foothills of a, of a real you know steep curve in innovation. And if we think about some of the issues we had during COVID, I mean, it wasn't just the system balancing; it's also the sort of the quality of power and the type of power and issues around inertia and reactive power and voltage. And actually. There's lots and lots of solutions out there that maybe, you know, we've, we've identified academically, if you like, but we haven't yet brought to fruition. And, and I think that, uh, you know, the, the ESO clearly has a role to encourage that and to bring that forward. But there's a lot of other actors in there. I mean, Innovate UK is a good, another, another organization that's involved in that. But the market itself and some of the leading players in the energy supply companies, and mentioned Octopus by name, mm-hmm. who are looking at, you know, really innovative ways of providing flexibility. So the challenge, I think, for uh, policymakers and the regulator is to create an environment where all of those solutions can compete and where we can see the best solutions uh, um, you know, coming forward and succeeding. And we, we talked a lot about the ESO, Johnny. What about DS, DSO? I mean, that was the great white hope of this, this transformation, wasn't it? We're going to start doing, you know, everything's local these days. We're going to manage it all locally. Is that... Yeah, I think that, I mean, that's absolutely on the agenda. And I think a lot of these issues will eventually, you know, you know percolate down to the low voltage network level and the, uh, and the distribution level. I mean, there's a, I don't know if you feel this, but uh, the talk about the DSO seems to be slightly off the boil compared to where it was sort of a year ago or a year and a half ago. Um, so maybe there's slightly less focus on that, but I think we're seeing a lot of activity around local flexibility markets, the tenders that are coming out from the DSOs as well. And that is encouraging people to think about balancing at a local level. 
Yeah, I, we talk a lot about these local balancing markets um, and the local flexibility markets and the innovation that's come through them. But when we talk about this with the ESN and potential involvement of large storage assets in these markets, most people at the moment are just saying, well, the costs are, the cost to participate and the, the revenues we're going to get from it are just not enough. We can't at this point in time. It's very interesting, but it's not quite enough for us yet. How do you think that can change, Johnny? What, I mean, are we still just in too early stages or what do you think needs to change in those markets to make that happen? Well, I, I, personally, I think what, what needs to change is the business model because I don't think storage assets in particular will be able to survive purely by offering you know, auxiliary services to the networks. And we, the old adage about you know, stacking revenues, I think that's still true. And I think we need to find a way in which you know, storage assets can compete in you know the, the the wholesale market and price arbitrage and you know, playing off the volatility of the system as we talked about earlier, and then also tap into additional revenue streams from providing auxiliary services, and, and maybe because of the focus on frequency response, particularly as as seen as the the key way to get revenue, um, storage assets are looking for that sort of solution, and I don't think that's going to be there in the future. Does that, does that point to need for market reform then? You know, we, we have this system of, uh, you know, the market, the wholesale market uh, tries to balance supply and demand. Uh, all suppliers are balancing responsible parties. And then, uh, you know, we come to gate closure an hour before or whenever, and then it's all handed over to a system operator to, to kind of balance. So are we looking towards... Gate closure closer to the real market or shorter settlement periods? Are we going to see in this smart system of future, are we going to see a radically different energy market? I think so. I mean, supply chain theory would say that, you know, where you have a market and you have constraints, et cetera, if you can reduce lead times, if you can increase transparency, if you increase the liquidity in the market, then you're going to get a more optimum solution. So, I mean, gate closure is a, is a fairly clunky process. And as you say, you know, sort of handing over the system to the ESO to manage. Uh, I think that, that gate closure needs to be, you know, the time needs to be reduced. And perhaps at some point we won't even think about gate closure. We just think about a market that runs itself. And then the, the interventions that are needed whenever that market doesn't work are, are operating in real time in a dynamic way. And, and, and so clearly that's how you'd want the system to, a, uh, to operate. Sorry, Johnny, I feel like you're just being interrogated here, but another question for you. <laughs> you are the expert, so that's it's, your fault. It's Friday morning <laughs> as well, so I'm, <laughs> I'm about to switch um, off for just, the day. <laughs> I'll keep it an easy question then. Um, the clean energy package, that's always an easy one in the EU, and they are pushing towards much shorter gate closure and uh, contract periods. And do you, so when we talk about these things, these contracts getting a lot shorter, do you think that's beneficial for renewables and for storage and for the flexibility on the system? Do you think it's going to significantly change how, you know, because we want longer contracts for um, technologies that have kind of high capex uh, costs? Do you think that's going to, in the short term, disadvantage renewables and storage, or do you think it's just uh, not really relevant? Well, I, I, I think it's very tough for storage. I mean, we've set a very, very ambitious and brave policy, which is to try to develop storage in the UK without any subsidy. So, and and, and I think that's great, and I think that's really a strong position to be in. But it does mean that investors need to look at revenue streams and the firmness of revenue streams in order to make those investments. 
and and inevitably would like to have long term contracts and certainty and 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 uh, um, the confidence to invest. And I think we're going to have to get our head around this whole world of merchant risk and and dealing with revenue streams that are not firm, but having the confidence that there is value in storage and there's value in flexibility that's not going to go away and just being adaptable about how we can use and apply that. Madeleine, I mean, you've asked a question, but you're spending a lot of time with some of the companies uh, putting hard cash on the table. And, uh, you know, we, we do have over a getting on, not over, getting on for a gigawatt storage on the system. Mm-hmm. And I think when we did our recent analysis as the system-wide resource registers, there was something like 10 gig of projects with planning permission. So plenty of people spending time and effort and real money, you know, on the storage market. So do you feel that they see viable business models coming forward for the kind of scale of storage that they want to deploy? I think people do. People are clearly confident. There's clearly a lot of ambition. I think it's the rate of change that's quite difficult to deal with. I mean, if you look back to what, four years ago, before I joined the energy sector, where we were looking at EFR and FFR and high revenues coming from that, and, and you know people were putting all their eggs in that basket. And that doesn't feel like that long ago, but actually so much has changed since then. And now people are moving much more towards the trading model. We're looking at things like net imbalance volume chasing. And let's not talk about that because it's far too complicated for me at this point in time. But um, it's, you know, the point being that there's lots of incredibly complex, difficult new markets emerging, which is exciting, but it just means a lot of change. So, yes, I think there's a lot of ambition. But as Johnny said, it's quite hard to predict longer term what the firmness of those revenues are going to be. Okay, and just just to given its regen, I don't think we can have this conversation without mentioning carbon at some point. Um, and we, we've managed to have it pretty much so far without mentioning carbon. So uh, we've put out a paper on that recently, and uh, the um, uh, Bayes had a session about uh, carbon and flex markets. Is that another source of value that the sector is going to need to get its head around meddling? Or? It could be. If we do it right, uh, there's definitely an opportunity there. Um, when we talk about the the markets that we um, go for as storage units when we talk about the dispatch in the control room carbon needs to inherently be a part of that in order for it for it to be a value for storage and at the moment it's not uh, it's not it's not as we outlined in our in our paper carbon is an externality and it's supposed to be captured by the carbon price that's just not high enough to make any difference right now maybe it could be but it's it's not at the moment and that's just something we're going to have to deal with so to get that value into those markets, we need to be looking at creative ways of bringing that that value of carbon directly into our markets, and that's through the the market system. So through our uh, you know the auctions we do for for different contracts, through the the, dis, the the markets that we actually have more real time, but also in the dispatch decisions that we make in the control room. So can we be thinking about low carbon assets and the value of carbon as we're actually dispatching assets in real time? So, um, Sorry, Johnny, go for it. So, so um, I'm, I'm Madeline, as, as you've been pushing very hard, I know, is uh, our starting point is just to measure the carbon intensity of some of these markets. And that would seem to be a good way of at least understanding where we are and how far we are from running a, a genuinely net zero energy system. Uh, I mean, there's been a lot of talk about the, the challenges of measuring the carbon intensity of some of those markets. And you could do it in a very complicated way and you could try to do it in a sort of you know real-time actual carbon intensity for every transaction. But actually, I think as a starting point, just having some basic KPIs around carbon intensity and measuring that in a way that is practical 
but at least give us a benchmark and enable us to monitor and measure how far we're improving. So, okay. So, John, uh, you talked about uh, net zero there, and that's obviously the, the goal. And I think everyone accepts that to do that, we're going to need a lot more renewables. Boris is, uh, has gone big on wind and offshore wind. and Offshore seeing, wind. Offshore wind. Uh, so, you know, we're seeing wind energy as the centrepiece of the Tory party conference speech, which is, a, you know, front page of the Daily Mail. Where Incredible, else. wasn't it? I, I mean, I've, I, I've got that. I'm going to print it out, actually, and uh, yeah, stick it on the wall. The Daily Mail highlighting wind is the future. <laughs> so, okay, so even the Daily Mail agrees, you know, we need a lot more renewables. We can retire now, Merlin. <laughs> <laughs> so just before we retire, I guess... Uh, uh, you know, imagine a future, perhaps not that far away, 70, 80% renewables and more. Uh, so at times we're going to have lots and lots of wind, probably you know, too much to be current demand. At times we're going to challenge not have enough. Do all these stuff we've been talking about, these flexibility solutions and balancing mechanisms and stuff, are they going to, you know, is that is that going to work? Or are we, are we still got some fundamental challenges about that very high renewable system that we haven't quite thought through yet? Yes. Um, on, on the question of too much renewable energy or too much cheap, low-cost energy, I, I'm really confident that we will find solutions for that and the market will come forward. So we've talked about storage in connection with um, you know, grid services, but I mean, we'll, we're going to see much larger capacity storage coming forward and you know, I think the consensus is we might need something like 10 to 12 gigawatts of, of storage power, but probably you know, two or three times that in terms of the, um, the, the energy storage, the megawatt hours or the gigawatt hours of energy storage. So that's one solution we're going to see coming forward. Interconnectors to Europe. I mean, we need to have a joined up connected energy system. So when we have too much wind in the UK, we should be knocking out coal-fired power stations in Poland. And there's no reason why that shouldn't be our, our goal. And that's going to help a lot. The whole multi-vector thing is still there, and, and particularly hydrogen electrolysis. So, you know, when we've got renewable electricity, which is so cheap, then we can convert that into a new fuel type, and we can use that for a whole bunch of different things from transport to industrial uses. And also a demand response. I mean, if we get clever about using energy and we have a lot more flexibility across consumers and industrial customers, we can basically fine-tune and absorb a lot of that, a, um, that cheap renewable electricity. So the, so the oversupply issue we saw during COVID, uh, I, I mean, I think we'll go. I think we'll find a way of using cheap energy because we always will. The, the undersupply issue, the, the Dunkelflut is the new expression that we're all using in Regen now, which is, uh, okay. I will explain. <laughs> I'm not sure anyone else is using it yet, so let's Well, let's, let's, uh, get, let's, it, let's get it out there. The Dunkelflut <laughs> is a weather phenomenon uh, yeah, across Northern Europe where we have a, a period of dank, cold, wet, miserable weather with no wind. And that is still going to be a challenge. I mean, thankfully in the UK, we very rarely have you know many days of no wind, but in Eastern Europe and in Central Europe, that is a feature. And of course, if we're in a joined up energy system, that can create a problem. So we do need to think about how we address that low wind, low solar situation with cold weather. And, and what is the backup or what is the, the, the recourse we have to energy to give us that energy security? So a bit of a debate that you and I have had, John, in that we've been talking about a lot in the team is that issue of long duration storage and long long term storage so storage that can provide energy for a long time but storage that can store energy for a long time so perhaps something like interseasonal storage so if we have excess generation during the summer can we save it for the winter and 
we've talked a lot about hydrogen being a part of that. It's such a new and difficult field that we have had some interesting debates, and I should, I should probably say disagreements within the team as to whether that's going to be necessary or not. I, I feel that definitely longer duration is going to be a part of that solution to what you're, you know, the Dunkel flirts, as you're saying, Johnny. But what do you think about the longer duration interseasonal hydrogen playing a part of that? I, I think that's right. I mean, there's a question mark about the cost of hydrogen if you're going to use it in this context to convert back to electricity again. And I think that, you know, that that cycle of electricity into hydrogen, possibly into ammonia as well in terms of a storage solution, and then back into electricity is, is going to be expensive. And I think that will probably play a role, but it may play a role in the extreme situations where we have, you know, very high electricity price that makes that work. Um, so we have had a big debate in region about, you know, to what extent is it viable to store electricity over the seasonal periods or over the over the annual periods? I mean, there's a few other things knocking around. I mean, we're still waiting for carbon capture and storage. I mean, if we did have CCUS and that did work at scale, then certainly as an interim solution, we might consider having a fossil fuel backup, you know, with with CCUS, which would be compatible with net zero. I just wish somebody would get off the pot on CCUS. I mean, are we going to do it? Are we not going to do it? Does it work at scale? Is it viable or not? And if it is viable, then why aren't we insisting that every new fossil generator has got CCUS capability? It's so, interesting, Johnny, thinking back to a few years ago, I think the, the idea that there was an alternative for a viable system that didn't include you know, gas-fired power stations with probably with some CCS sitting there, you know, no, no one really had another alternative. Do we think we're saying now and kind of reflecting on what Madeline's saying that the kind of decentralized smart system and some uh, multi-vector thinking might, you know, that that might, you know, lots of renewables and then clever smart systems, could that do it? It could do it, but I think we've got to prove that that's viable. I think there's still a question mark over that. I mean, call me old fashioned, but I mean, there's still people who will think in terms of energy security that you must have something which is large, dependable, can be called upon, and uh, um, is, is, is firm in its commitment. It's a brave new world when we think about lots of individual actors and lots of decentralized um, you know, storage, flexibility, et cetera, providing that same level of security. Mm-hmm. I think it's viable, but I think we have to prove that resilience and we have to show that that would work. I suspect we're going to end up with a combination of things, to be perfectly frank, particularly in the period of the 2030s and 2040s where we, we may end up retaining some fossil fuel generation, hopefully with CCUS. If not, we're going to need a lot more negative emissions in order to meet those, uh, those carbon emissions. Um, possibly some new hydrogen plants coming on in terms of peaking plant and power generation, and then a lot more flexibility and decentralized solutions at a local level. Someone once described to me, the um, uh, they said, if you're the energy minister, you don't really have a, a trilemma. The reality is that you, you've got a dilemma. You're trying to keep the treasury happy by not spending too much money, and you're trying to not be in the hot seat when the lights go out. You know, And so that's your mentality. And so the idea, the opportunity of a, a big red button that you know you press to fire up something big that you can you can open and put your hard hat on and go and point at is, is probably quite attractive compared to the idea of all this smart, clever stuff that probably that's going to work with some clever algorithm. But you, you can see that there's still some nervousness out there. Uh, Madeline, do you, do you get that sense when you're kind of engaging with Bayes and you know watching policy makers? 
I'm quite nervous about the idea of two big red buttons, one for the nuclear uh, weapons and one for the nuclear power plants right next to each other. Uh, but if we can separate them a bit, then maybe that's a better idea. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't have that nervousness and I don't get that impression, actually, because it's quite interesting talking to you two is you've been in the energy system for a long time and you know, you're very experienced and you've seen the, the change happen. I came into the energy sector two years ago for me, all this talk of like a, a decentralized, flexible system that will work 100% renewables is just—it's just kind of a, a fact that I think will happen at some point in the in the near future. It doesn't—it's not a question for me. And I hear the conversations quite differently in the industry. And it, for me, I'm, I'm just hearing the positives of yeah, we can do this. We've just got to work out how the, the solutions are there. It's going to be difficult, but it will happen. And we have the right technology. We're moving on the right trajectory for it. She's calling us old. Johnny. I was but. just about to say that. This is an intergenerational <laughs> issue. Our children it, are, turn, are turning on us. <laughs> I, I, do, I have to share at this moment that my spa, I was feeling, you know, chipper this morning. I got up, ready to do the podcast, done my yoga. And then I looked at my uh, email and my spam email was uh, was suggesting that I should probably take out a, a plan to cover the cost of my funeral. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> maybe on to something. Isn't that interesting, though, that somebody who's come into the sector in the last sort of four or five years would just automatically think that the solution is bound to be a smart, decentralized, flexible solution? And and you and me, Marlon, who've been around for a while, are kind of still, even though we're, we are renewables through and through, still wed to the idea that there needs to be some sort of big red button there in the background. Uh, interesting you mentioned nuclear as, as well in that uh, discussion, Madeline, I mean, where is nuclear in all this? I mean, nobody's really talking about nuclear providing the answer anymore in terms of, you know, the, the base load solution that we need. I mean, everyone's realizing that we need flexibility, whether it's large scale flexibility or decentralized small scale flexibility. It's all about flexible uh, generation that can go alongside renewables. We're, we're probably ex expecting another nuclear power station to get the go ahead soon, I'm, I'm afraid as well. But maybe partly you're, you've, you've come from a data background, haven't you? A, a sort of data science background. So I guess there's probably a background there that gives you confidence in smart, decentralised uh, stuff as well. Yeah, I think so. And just seeing the ambition, the expectation in the technology industry in general as, a, as an economy and as a society work, working towards the Internet of Things, everything being connected, everything working in real time, everything being automated why wouldn't we have that in our energy system? Why, I, I'm almost surprised at the, the way that we don't have that in some of the bits of our energy system. We certainly do, and we're certainly getting there, but I know that that technology exists and it works in, in certain areas of our economy and in different industries. So it can certainly work in the energy industry. We just need to get the right things in place for it to happen. So how do we go about proving that? Because I, I agree with what you're saying, but I can also see that there's this political challenge there and ministers will want to have a solution and, and not just ministers, but even, you know, a lot of people working in the energy security area will be thinking we need to have big solutions. So how do we go about showing and demonstrating that that capability will emerge? I think if we just wait for the market to make it happen, then we will be proven we, we might be proven wrong or there's a bigger risk of us being proven wrong because we're just waiting for a market to kind of expect to, to pay for storage for as, as an example of a technology that's going to provide some of this stuff. If the, if the government actually throws their hat in the ring and says, 
yeah, okay, we think storage is is the right thing. Here's our plan for what we see of storage over the next few years, what we see for flexibility. Here's, you know, maybe certain funding pots for uh, for different types of storage technologies to get them off the ground and actually helps us to get those things installed and, and onto the system, then yeah, we might be able to prove that point. But if we're just going to sit and wait and say, well, well, let's see if it happens, let let's let sort of the ethereal market forces make that happen, then yeah, I think that will take a lot longer and we won't prove our point in the same way. That takes us towards um, the energy long-awaited mythical beast of the energy white paper, which uh, we're hoping for, I think, this, you know, for in November after a big sort of set piece statement, I think, on on um, net zero and the green industrial revolution, uh, then with the sort of details to follow. And our pitch has been uh, at Regen as we've met ministers and officials that what we want out of the energy white paper is for the government to really set out that vision of the smart, flexible system of the future and really give confidence to market players and investors. So is that our conclusion, Johnny? Is that is that our message at the end of this this podcast, having thought it through? Is that, that, is that what we need to see? Absolutely. I mean, we had the paper, was it two years ago or three years ago, on the smart, clean, flexible energy system, and we were waiting to see, uh, just as Madeline described there, how the government was going to go about supporting that and, and delivering that. And there has been a hiatus, and I don't think we've made that much progress in that that sort of intellectual thinking about systems in the future. So. This white paper, I mean, I think we all know it's not going to have in it what we want, and it's probably going to be a little bit of a damp squib, but let's hope that we see some real direction and some real concrete um, you know, proposals around how we convert and transition our energy system. I think what we've set out here then is uh, just let, let, me, let me try and, and, and summarise that and see if you, you think I'm... So if you think I'm right, we set out a system, a huge amount of change and adaptation in the system and the those responsible for operating it uh, compared to the kind of, uh, to, to cope with this transformation in the energy system to millions of generators, to EVs, et cetera. Uh, and that's gone pretty well. We've set out a kind of a lot of change in innovation and technology and markets that's going on now. And it's kind of a hard slog. And we can say that, the powers that be are doing a good job or they're not doing a good job, but you know, we can we can debate about that, but it's going in the right direction and we're working through, we're sitting through the long meetings and the code modifications to try and move things forward, get more people into the balancing mechanism, etc. And as we look forward to the future, what we now need to see is a clear vision from government and continued impetus on those kind of market reforms and uh uh, and technological innovation to to you know provide us with the path towards that vision that investors and technology developers and others and uh, local authorities and communities can can all, all get behind. Uh, is that does that work as a summary for you, madam? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think the the specific bits that I'd like to see are. It sounds really dull, but like a improvement in the IT system. I can't believe it's 2020 and I'm talking about IT as an actual thing, but improving our technology system across the network so we can have that real-time dispatch of multiple assets, uh, ease of access for flexible technologies. It's That is, for me, one of the most vital things that we're going to need if we're going to make this happen. Okay, and Johnny? Uh, for me, yeah, it's that momentum thing, isn't it? It's about carrying on. I mean, there's a, there is a risk, there's a danger that we sort of, we've almost surprised ourselves by getting to 50% renewables and we've seen some issues. So we might think, well, let's plateau at this point and, 
you know, let's build the perfect system before we proceed. And I think what we've got to do is be confident to go ahead and, and, and you know, kick on now to get to 80, 90% renewables, confident in our ability to innovate and our ability to bring forward new technology that will deal with the issues as they arise. Excellent. Um, a final reflection, I think, just triggered by that and thinking about working in this space over the last few years is, you know, that there are a lot of great people out there working in the in the industry and in the system operators and the DNOs and the ESO who are, you know, who are really committed, I think, to this this change. And it's uh, it's kind of their career. They've come into the what probably was a fairly slowly moving system uh, at a time of radical change. And that's their their opportunity in a way is to sort of steer us through that that, that change. So um, certainly uh, my feeling when we actually working with some of the key players in the system and the key, uh, you know, is, is certainly one of optimism about the people involved and their commitment um, commitment to this, particularly perhaps the younger folk, as we've heard from Madam, who have kind of got it all sorted. <laughs> anyway. Give youth its day. <laughs> um, seriously, though, there's, um, so many, there's so many bright young people coming into energy now, and, you know, I don't think I'd get a job anymore if I applied today. <laughs> well, on that note, uh, let's let's bring us... Let's bring this this one to a close. We'll be doing lots more, I'm sure, chats about key areas of, of the energy system. So uh, probably just left to thank both of you uh, for for contribution and all your hard work. Um, thank uh, our producer Rachel, who's been uh, uh, who we can see. The good thing about doing this over a, over Zoom is that Rachel can keep a good eye on us and, and sort of tell us what when we're going going wrong. Um, and uh, thank our sound engineer, Harry. And I hope you guys all uh, enjoy and find it useful. Um, we'd l- love to hear back from you on, y- on your thoughts and um, look forward to working with you all in the future. That's it. Goodbye, guys. Bye.